0: Delano Ironworks. An absurd story got into circulation last week that the Delano Ironworks had suspended operations on account of the heat. The report was entirely without foundation. The works are in active operation, and a number of laborers are needed to handle the rails as fast as they are rolled out. Laborers wanted. Thirty or forty men wanted immediately at the Delano Ironworks, Eighth Ward. Oh, each would fly through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying Hi there, this is Hugh Yeaman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago this week. Hey there, and welcome to Episode 9. If you're into obscure inferences drawn from 150-year-old newspapers, boy are you in luck! We're going to jump right back into the newspaper articles from February 17, 1868, the day before the Syracuse mayoral elections. Check out previous episodes for more details. In the journal, screeds against green fire hose from three of their eight pages. They warm up with some of the broadest generalizations I've heard yet. Check it out. The issue tomorrow. The issue of tomorrow's election is fairly and squarely presented. This contest is not of a merely local or personal nature, but through the character and antecedents of the leading candidates, it becomes a trial of vital principles. The union sentiment, the patriotism, and the devotion to country of the people of Syracuse are represented by Charles Andrews. All that is opposed to this Union sentiment, this patriotism, and this devotion to country, is represented by John A. Green, Jr. The electors of Syracuse know the character and the acts of these representative men during the war upon all questions involving the nation's safety and the national honor, the devotion of Charles Andrews to all that was held dear and sacred by those who adhered to the government and who fought for the life of the nation and the faithlessness and treachery of his opponent, John A. Green, Jr. There is, therefore, a clear understanding of who deserves to be voted for and who should be voted against, and of what significance will attach to a triumph of either of these candidates. Every consideration of public interest and of personal duty requires that Charles Andrews should be elected mayor. This result would redound to the credit and honor of our city, at home and abroad, and the victory would gain additional luster by the defeat of his unworthy competitor. Knowing your duty, electors, Fail not of its full performance, and all will be well. All right, this is Hugh jumping in here. This next bit about John A. Green's refusal to display the flag gives me an uncomfortableness because I don't like the idea of someone being forced by his community to display the flag. However, I go back to my own rule about context. The context here is radically different than it was during my lifetime. This was a fight for the preservation of the Union. So I keep telling myself to relax and see this from a contemporary perspective. Here it is. John A. Green and Old Glory It was the pride and pleasure of loyal and patriotic men of all parties to hoist the flag of the Union and keep it to the breeze while rebels and traitors were trying to humble it in the dust. But at no time during the war would John A. Green, Jr. display the flag. He was asked to put it on his house and on his store, but he would not comply with the request, and in this he openly and boldly defied public opinion, as he did when he proclaimed his demand for the recognition of the Southern Confederacy. He would not recognize the glorious emblem of nationality and unity. When the flag, by some unknown hands, was displayed from a window of his store, it was immediately taken down, and this infamous circumstance was printed in the rebel newspapers of the cities of the South, and gloated over, in rebel cabinet and at rebel campfires, as an evidence of a division of sentiment at the North." But since John A. Green Jr. has repudiated the flag of the United States of America and the stars and bars are driven out of the land, what standard does he serve under? The people of Syracuse will help him out of the dilemma. They will compel a surrender. And at sundown tomorrow, John A. Green Jr. will send in his new colors, the white flag. Hugh here again. Now, as far as rhetorical devices go, the interesting thing here is that this Republican paper is saying, look, look, this guy is giving the other side ammunition. They're gloating over us. Note that, as is the case with a lot of these rhetorical devices, both sides are using it. For background on the name-dropping, Clement Vallandigham was the leader of the Copperhead faction of anti-war Democrats during the Civil War, Jefferson Davis was the only president of the Confederate states from 1861 to 1865, and Robert Toombs was a founding father of the Confederacy and its first Secretary of State. Here's the article. Questions for War Democrats. Would you vote for Vallandigham for mayor of Syracuse? If not, how can you vote for John A. Green, who, to the extent of his ability, is Vallandigham's double? Would you vote for Jefferson Davis or for Robert Toombs? If not, how can you vote for John A. Green, who with intent like that of Davis and Toombs had not the excuse or palliation of southern interests and associations for his secession sympathies? Can you, by your votes, in the discharge of the most solemn and responsible duty of a free man, approve the infamous demand of John A. Green? openly and boldly made, for a recognition of the Southern Confederacy when the boomings of rebel guns against Fort Sumter were yet resounding? Can you endorse John A. Green's denunciation of the war for the Union as an accursed fraternal contest, as an odious and repulsive war, as a wrong, unjust, inexpedient, causeless, and unauthorized war, Answer these questions, war Democrats, at the polls tomorrow. Answer them to your honor, to your consistency, to your manhood, to your self-respect, and to your consciences. Hugh here again. In this next piece, note how the journal uses the no true Scotsman argument. A record to be repudiated. The recognition of the Southern Confederacy was demanded by John A. Green when President Lincoln called for troops to resist the assaults of the rebels and traitors in April 1861. This was the keynote to his political action till the Union armies were victorious when he took ground for a peace, a base and ignoble surrender to the rebels and traitors. And then, as the most efficient service he could render the secessionists, he joined in the hue and cry that the war was a failure. This is Green's political record in brief. Can any supporter of the war to restore the Union, any man who fought the battles of the Union, any man who lost a son or a brother on the battlefields of the South, can any such man so far forget this infamous record as to vote for John A. Green for mayor? There are many war men in the Democratic Party of this city, But they cannot sink their honor, their consistency, and their self-respect by voting for Green against Charles Andrews, whose loyal and patriotic record is like the brightest sunlight in comparison with the midnight blackness of Green's record. Hugh jumping in here again. This next bit is really interesting because it's so familiar from a contemporary perspective. The idea is, find that movable middle... Try to move them, but don't get involved with violent partisans. Individual Efforts Union men, be active and vigilant at the polls tomorrow. Be on the ground at the opening of the polls in strong numbers and stay there till the polls close. Look sharp after the doubtful voters. There are many of our opponents who are hesitating and who incline to vote for men whose loyalty and patriotism are unchallenged. Talk with them and urge them to unite with you in supporting Charles Andrews and his associates on the union ticket. There has never been a local election here when individual exertion counted as much as it will count tomorrow— Leave no efforts untried to persuade the lukewarm to join hands to electing our excellent candidates. But do not enter into useless arguments with violent partisans. Work on, quietly, vigilantly, and efficiently, and in this way your exertions will be of the greatest service to your nominees. Work. 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 Hugh here. Interesting. I didn't notice the rhetorical progression leading to this next piece until just now. It started with, this guy is providing aid and comfort to the enemy, moved on to, no true Democrat would lower himself to voting for this guy, and now they're saying, look, even this guy's own party can't stand him. Oh, also, those 19th century news writers loved them some Latin. I'd never heard this one before. It was printed as Ignus Fatuus, But the actual term is ignis fatuus, a light that sometimes appears in the night over marshy ground and is often attributable to the combustion of gas from decomposed organic matter, in other words, a will-of-the-wisp, or a deceptive goal or hope. Anyway, here's the article. The Democratic press denounced John A. Green. We reproduce the remarkable telegram of John A. Green to the Associated Press on the 16th of April, 1861, in response to the President's call for troops to put down the first outbreak of the rebellion, when the national capital was in jeopardy, the national arms and munitions of war were in the hands of the traitors, and the government was destitute of the simplest means of defense. This is the Dispatch. The Herald's Albany dispatch of yesterday stating that Mr. John A. Green Jr. would call a convention to support Mr. Lincoln's administration, the president just then having issued his first call for 75,000 troops, is entirely erroneous. That gentleman, John A. Green Jr., openly and boldly favors the recognition of the Confederate States of America... This publication created astonishment, surprise, and indignation, not only in Syracuse, but throughout the state. It was a marvel how any man with the slightest love of country or pride of nationality could be so perverse and wicked as to take the position that John A. Green did. The press of the state, except the rebel news of New York, Green's Courier and Union, and perhaps one or two other journals of so little importance as to be forgotten now, denounced and condemned Green's secession sympathies in the strongest terms. No journals were more severe against him than some of the leading Democratic newspapers. We chanced to have convenient the comments of the Rochester Union and Advertiser, one of the ablest and strongest of the Democratic journals of the country, We copy what it said on the 18th of April, 1861. John A. Green's address, he issues, A Big Thing, Ridiculous Vanity, Low Intrigue, etc. Numerous people have long been wondering what has become of the wonderful John A. Green. No address or resolution has been issued by him these many months, and people began to think he had subsided. But Mayor Wood's news assures us in an article headed Big Thing that Mr. Green has prepared an address and that such address or Big Thing will be immediately published. We breathe freer and deeper on reading this important announcement. Mayor Wood's organ informs us that Mr. Green will seek only to cooperate with the friends of Bell and Douglas, etc., and will demand the recognition of the independence of the Southern Confederacy. Johnny is very modest in what he seeks, but we reckon the friends of Douglas and Bell will politely request to be excused from any such cooperation." The unanimous action of our common council last evening, composed of every party and of every shade of politics, may serve to admonish Mr. Green that he is chasing an ignus fatuus. The people of this state, no matter what may be their opinion of specific measures of the administration, will cordially sustain its efforts to preserve the government They feel and know that New York cannot be disintegrated, whether the Union shall be or not, and that being the case, however much they may disagree, as they inevitably will disagree in respect to subordinate matters, they will maintain their own unity and throw their influence, with a consciousness of its importance and its power, on the side of the government of the country." Let Mr. Green's ridiculous vanity be kept within proper bounds, and when he can spare a moment from intrigue and address manufacture, we would respectfully suggest that he read for his guidance the first clause of Section 3, Article 3 of the Federal Constitution. That may have a remote bearing upon his demanding the recognition of the independence of the Southern Confederacy. Hugh jumping in here again. This next bit is a grab bag of insinuations surrounding the voting process. Now here's what I don't understand. These repeated accusations of buying and trading votes. How did that work? Did these people actually trust each other to follow through on their promises to vote one way or the other? I mean, there was no way to verify that someone voted the way they said they did, right? Was this merely baseless gossip used to smear the other side? Maybe a listener can tell me something I don't know. Anyway, here's the article. Election Notes Last words with voters. The polls of election tomorrow will open at 8 o'clock and close at 5. There is great need of keeping a close watch on the count of the votes tomorrow evening. Our opponents are desperate and reckless. They will do anything to elect their candidates. It is, therefore, the duty of union men to see that the votes are counted and that there is no cheating round the board. The Republican vote should be got in at the earliest practicable hour. Those who are usually tardy should be sent after before noon. Let the vigilance committees begin work with the opening of the polls and be unremitting in their labors till the last union vote is polled. This is the way to win a victory. It was John A. Green who refused to join with his fellow citizens, who petitioned by thousands that the Common Council provide a fund for the support of the widows and orphans made so by the war. This is a part of his ignoble record, which soldiers and soldiers' friends will not forget at the polls tomorrow. The Friends of Good Government will vote for Charles Andrews, Patrick Corbett, and their associates. Green, Sherlock, and company would make the city hall an asylum for political paupers, and Syracuse has had enough of such. We want a new police force, composed of live men who will be an efficient protection against offenders, and these can only be had by the election of Charles Andrews as mayor. Republicans should entertain no offers from Democrats to vote for the secession candidate for mayor in exchange for votes for ward candidates. This will be a game of the Democrats who will make everything else subservient to John A. Green's interests. Our party friends must stand firm by their candidates and vote the whole union ticket. Do not trade or barter on any part of the ticket. Vote the straight ticket. It is a sorry day for a political party when hundreds of its members strike for wages. This is the case with the Syracuse democracy in large part who, being advised that John A. Green expects his election on a money basis, crowd the street corners and talk loudly of what their services are worth. When full one quarter of the so-called Democrats wait and watch for pay for their votes and won't vote till they are paid, the prospect of success for their candidates is small indeed. A placard was extensively posted about the streets this forenoon, bearing the following inscriptions. If any man attempts to haul down the American flag, shoot him on the spot. John A. Dix. If any man refuses to hoist the American flag, elect him Mayor of Syracuse. John A. Green. It is not known who perpetrated this sharp hit. It had a telling effect. Many of the placards were torn down or painted over, but the issue so pithily stated cannot be torn down or painted over. It is to be decided in the election tomorrow. Stand by the flag. The registry has been unusually large. This betokens a heavy vote tomorrow, The Republicans have been very active and thorough in the work of registration. The work must not be relaxed until the full vote is got into the ballot boxes. Many union voters who were lukewarm last fall were anxious to be registered when it was known that Charles Andrews, loyal, true, and patriotic, was opposed by John A. Green, disloyal, unfaithful, and unpatriotic. The issue is as pointed as it was at any time during the war. And loyal Syracuse has a solemn duty to perform in electing a loyal chief magistrate over a disloyal aspirant to the honorable position. All right, Hugh jumping in here again. This next one is important. Pay attention to the bit about how John A. Green supposedly used his command to suck Union forces away from the south and towards the northern frontier. It was John A. Green, Brigadier General Green, who accepted a commission to command the northern frontier, when there was no threat of invasion from that quarter, but when the rebel armies were advancing into Pennsylvania. It was a diversion in favor of the rebels, and Green was the only general of the National Guard in the state who would head the movement. It was a part of the Copperhead Fire in the Rear that was equivalent to an army of thousands and a fund of millions, in aid of the secession cause." he will be left to enjoy the honors of the Frontier Command by the outraged and indignant loyal citizens of Syracuse. Hugh here. That struck me as weird, and if you haven't listened to the previous episode, you don't know why. I recommend pausing this episode and listening to that one now because without understanding John A. Green's military and political career, you can't properly contextualize the following. What are you waiting for? Go, go! You back? Cool. Now, the reason that struck me as weird is that, as you know from the previous episode, John A. Green effectively threatened military insurrection against federal troops using his command of the northern frontier. That strikes me as a hell of a lot more serious than just funneling troops away from the south. So why is the journal focusing here on Green's northern troops and how they could be better used in the south when it could be reminding people that Green planned armed insurrection? Well, as it turned out, a potential answer to this question fell into my lap while I was researching this episode. And I'll go into that in a few minutes when this question of funneling troops to the north comes up again. Now, on to this next bit, which throws a different kind of shade onto Green's military service. The most active men in promoting John A. Green's success at this election are John C. Bennett and John C. Hunt. They are both bread-and-butter lackeys. The main part of their support has been earned on courts-martial, wherein Bennett would preside and Hunt be judge-advocate. The delinquent members of the National Guard, whose cases came before Bennett and Hunt, have been sweated to the extent of the law, and in this way Bennett and Hunt have made money easily and rapidly. In many cases of hardship, appeals have been taken to Brigadier General John A. Green, but this higher tribunal seldom gave relief." The judgments of Bennett and Hunt have been confirmed almost without exception. Green, Bennett, and Hunt form a ring whose object is to extort round sums from delinquent members of the National Guard. The sufferers by these outrageous impositions will remember General Green at the polls tomorrow. Hugh here again. Now, if you're some kind of monster who doesn't read 19th century newspapers all the time, you may not realize that they're full of silly poems that somebody from a citizen to the editor made up in order to fill column space. Check out this one. Andrews and Green, by a volunteer who served in two Onondaga regiments. Shall a traitor be honored and a patriot despised? Shall the coward be chosen and the hero chastised? Shall he who has boasted a copperhead name, who whined after peace when peace were our shame, when his country was stabbed by the hand of a foe, who lent his whole force to the weight of the blow, be the first in our city, our ruler and pride, and the true and tried lawyer be thrown aside? Shall he who was true when his country bled be humbled to dust, when her danger is fled, if this be the depth of a loyal name, oh, who shall have pluck for our battles again? Hugh here. If you're not thinking of Dr. Seuss right now, you're better than I am. Now here's some context for this next piece. 19th century newspapers are remarkably similar in many regards to modern social media, but one way I've noticed in which they're different Then modern newspapers is the civic pride. Remember, Syracuse was growing fast in those days, and so were a lot of other cities in New York, and they were vying with each other for prominence. So the newspapers are marbled with a sense of keeping up with the Joneses. Right now, right now being 150 years ago, the papers are full of announcements about railroad meetings. And the accounts of these meetings radiate a sort of sweaty urgency. The people of Syracuse and the surrounding towns seem worried that they might miss out on an opportunity to get a leg up on the competition. Citizens are keenly attuned to how Syracuse looks compared to other cities and to how Syracuse looks from the perspective of other cities. Keep that in mind when you listen to this. Interest Abroad in Tomorrow's Election The press of the state quite generally discuss the pending election in this city. Our candidates receive the unqualified commendation of leading journals. The Albany Express speaks of Charles Andrews as one of the ablest and most popular citizens of central New York. The Troy Times refers to Mr. Andrews as one of the leading Republicans in the state, and as a lawyer and legislator distinguished for commanding abilities. Syracuse will honor itself at home and abroad by electing Mr. Andrews to the chief magistracy of the city. Referring to Patrick Corbett's nomination for police justice, the Times says, The citizens of Syracuse should deem themselves fortunate in the opportunity afforded to secure the services in that position of one who possesses a statewide reputation for superior talents, and whose steadfast integrity is above all reproach. No young man in the state has a finer record for scholarship in political economy and excellent judgment in discovering the points of justice in questions at issue than Mr. Corbett. These are just commendations, and the Times' suggestion that the excellent Republican nominations in Syracuse ought to be successful accords with the determination of the Republican voters here. Hugh here again. Now we're coming to an article that's a lot more significant than it might seem at first blush. Pay special attention to the accusation that's being made here. Desperation and Tyrannical Oppression the Democratic Party leaders are driven to such extreme desperation that their attempted oppression of mechanics and working men will react upon their candidates with severe effect. For instance, the workmen in the rolling mills of the 8th Ward have been notified that those who vote against John A. Green, Jr. will be discharged, and the election of Charles Andrews is represented to them as likely to result in the withdrawal of a Central Railroad contract. Misters Nichols, Lynch, and Company doubtless have the power to take vengeance upon the workmen in their employ, but how does the exercise of tyranny by employers over the political opinions of their workmen strike the independent mechanics and working men of Syracuse? As to the Central Railroad contract being affected by Mr. Andrew's election, the statement is preposterous. Independent mechanics should rise to their might and show those who try thus arbitrarily to control their political opinions that such tyranny and oppression will not be allowed. They can do this by giving their votes to their true friend, Charles Andrews. Hugh here. Did you catch that? The journal claims that there's an ironworks in the 8th Ward, which is on the east side of Syracuse, where the management threatened to fire anyone voting against John A. Green. My ears perked up at that claim because I've seen it before, from the opposite side of the political fence. Jump cut to an article I found about two months ago and which happens to have been printed later that same year, October 17, 1868. This is, of course, from the Democratic newspaper, the Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. Editor, Courier and Union. Some time since, there appeared in your columns a communication stating that men were discharged from the rolling mill on account of their politics, which was denied by those having charge of the mill. I was a workman there at that time, and, in fact, until yesterday, when I received my discharge, for which I know no reason except that I refused to vote the radical ticket. Now, I do not care for myself, as labor is plenty and am in no wise afraid of becoming a town charge, but this is written to let people know the facts in the case, and to let them see to what straits a desperate case will drive men who claim to be leaders in the party of high moral ideas. It is the favorite doctrine of some of the radical leaders that Irishmen are below Negroes, and I believe the men in power at the Geddes Rolling Mill are no exception. I believe that they will discharge any of the men that they can possibly spare unless they will allow themselves to be controlled by these moral leaders, body and soul. I had previously been threatened with discharge, but probably it would not have been done at present except for the fact that I had the honor to serve as Marshal of the McClellan Legion of Geddes Wednesday evening last. This was the last ounce on the camel's back, and the big toad of the puddle could not allow any man to work in the mill who would lead a copperhead procession through the streets. This is the freedom which adopted citizens experience at the hands of radicals. Irish-American citizens, for what did you leave your own loved land? Was it to submit to a tyranny of the aristocracy worse than the oppression of Great Britain? Are you men and forced to perjure yourselves or starve? When we became adopted citizens of America, we swore to support the Constitution and the laws, and in so doing you act as becomes free men. But do not, whatever comes, forget your oath, and be led by promises of employment and assistance to vote for that party who trample on the Constitution. And when they have obtained your votes put you on a level or below the Negro. Thomas Muldoon, Geddes, October 16th, 1868. Hugh coming in again. So that was the article from October 1868. Now let's return to the pre-election article in the Journal that claimed that the management of the rolling mill in the 8th Ward was threatening to fire people who voted against John A. Green. That article mentioned two names, Nichols and Lynch. A quick search on Fulton history for the names Nichols and Lynch, along with the phrase ironworks, revealed that the factory in question was the Delano Ironworks. So I searched for Delano Ironworks and found something that blew my mind. This was printed in the Courier on April 2, 1867. Notice is hereby given that a meeting of the stockholders of the Delano Iron Works will be held at the office of said corporation in the city of Syracuse on Thursday, the 28th day of February, 1867, at 2 o'clock p.m., for the purpose of increasing the capital stock of said corporation to $180,000. Dated Syracuse, January 28, 1867. Charles Nichols, Patrick Lynch, John A. Green, Jr., trustees of the Delano Ironworks. That's right, John A. Green was a trustee, and I had no idea of that until I stumbled upon it. So, I have no idea whether it's true that the management of the Delano Ironworks threatened to fire workers for voting against John A. Green, but I do know that that accusation certainly would have had traction among the journal's readers, especially considering that the Delano Ironworks seems to have been massively successful. You know how that notice said they were increasing the capital stock to $180,000? Well, less than a year later, here's another article, January 20th, 1868, less than a month before the mayoral election. It's the same notice with the exception of one difference, This one says they're increasing the capital stock of said corporation to $360,000. So the Delano Ironworks seems to have been another one of John A. Green's quote-unquote organs, and a powerful one. That's it for the journal. Now, let's go over to the standard on the same day, February 17th. These first two short articles make accusations which are by now familiar. John A. Green refused during the war to sign a petition to the Common Council requesting it to bond the city for the benefit of the widows and orphans made by the war. Let every patriot remember this when he votes tomorrow. John A. Green openly and boldly favored the recognition of the Confederate States of America Let every man who loves his country and is in favor of the Union of the States remember this when he votes tomorrow. Hugh coming in. Note that this next paragraph starts with the words, It is said. You gotta love it when a news source leads with that. It is said by whom? Starting a sentence with those words automatically renders it meaningless. It's a classic way to make up your news. Oh, and when the name-dropping starts... Check the show notes for links to the Wikipedia articles on Belmont, Tilden, and Wood. Long story short, they were all massively influential in the Democratic Party. Here's the article. It is said that John A. Green has received offers of money from Democratic politicians all over the state with which to carry the election tomorrow. Shall it be that the swollen money bags of Belmont, Tilden, and Wood are to control the suffrages of our citizens? The fight tomorrow is to be between money and work. The money of the democracy is being freely poured out to flood the ballot boxes with votes for John A. Green. But the Republicans will meet the flood of money with such barriers of earnest work that the flood cannot overleap it, try it never so hard. The Democratic leaders will trade everything for votes for John A. Green. The rest of their ticket was nominated for trading capital. Already the complaints of other candidates are deep and strong. Let every Republican vote the entire ticket and not consent to scratch the name of Charles Andrews under any contingency and all will be well. Hugh here. So note that the Standard, as well as the Journal, is making accusations of vote selling and vote trading. And again, I don't understand how this was supposed to work. Either there's something I'm not seeing or it was apocryphal. Okay, listen up, because this next piece is important. It led me to a couple of keys that helped me understand how the public perceived Green. Here's what you need to know going into it. A couple of days previously, the Standard dropped the names of three prominent local soldiers and asked rhetorically what soldiers thought of Green's black record. One of those three soldiers, Ezra L. Walrath, replied in The Courier, stating his unequivocal support for Green. The following is a reply to that reply. To the Soldiers In the Courier of Saturday is an attempted reply to our query as to how soldiers liked the nomination of John A. Green. We say attempted reply, for although it was probably the best answer that could be made, it utterly failed to touch the vital issues involved, We made no inquiry as to how the war originated. It is entirely immaterial to us whether Brown fired the first gun at Harper's Ferry or Ruffin craved the infamous privilege of firing the first gun at Fort Sumter. Here is a plain, undisputed proposition. In April 1861, we found ourselves in the midst of a civil war. How we got there, let the politicians tell. But there we were. The Constitution had been plainly violated by Southern fanatics, and the flag had been fired upon by Southern desperadoes. In that same month, Ezra L. Walrath was at the head of a regiment and Edwin S. Jenny at the head of a company, and under their leadership rallied our brave boys from farm and from shop to save by force of arms at sacrifice of life, if necessary, the Union." Then there was no question of Negro emancipation or Negro suffrage. There was but one object, to save the Union. All good Democrats and all good Republicans put forth their united efforts for the salvation of the country— Even Fernando Wood was tamed into making a war speech in Union Square, but where stood John A. Greene? He was among the few, the very few men at the North who opposed the war and declared that the Confederate States ought to be recognized. In May 1861, while the men of the Twelfth were at the front, he wrote his infamous peace letter in which he boldly took a stand in favor of the right of secession. How do the soldiers like that? His actions throughout the war were entirely consistent with his first position. He would not put up the American flag until he was compelled so to do. He dictated treasonable editorials in the Courier. He refused to give a single dollar to the war. He inaugurated the Peace Meeting of 1864 with its execrable speakers and its still more execrable mottos. This man is not an ordinary Democrat. He achieved a national notoriety as a copperhead because there were so very few like him that he was lifted into prominence. If he was an ordinary Democrat, we could excuse soldiers for voting for him. But he is not a man who simply opposed certain measures of the government, but he opposed every measure looking to a resolution of the Union by force of arms. Soldiers of the Republic, while you were on the toilsome march, on lonely picket round, by midnight bivouac, in the red carnage of battle, this man was stabbing you from behind, and opposing the preservation of the lives of your wives and children. Soldiers of the Republic, you cannot find it in your hearts to vote for such a man. If you can, where are your memories?' If you can, you hold your service very cheap, cheaper by far than does your grateful country. We are surprised to see a gentleman with the military reputation of Colonel Walrath consenting to vote for the sworn enemy of the soldiers. We are not surprised to find that Colonel, with all his skill in the handling of the pen, is not able to give any better reason for the faith that is in him. General Green, the courier has yet to learn, has ever betrayed a single principle of the great democratic party. Where did the courier learn of democracy? If at the feet of John C. Breckinridge, arch-traitor in 1861, miserable exile now, it can consistently deny General Green's betrayal of democratic principles— If at the feet of Stephen A. Douglas, whose last days were his best days, because they were his patriotic days, it should blush to defend John A. Green's democracy. Colonel Walrath, we are not discussing private character. That argument goes but a little way. Jeff Davis is irreproachable in that regard, and Aaron Burr was a model gentleman. Were they less traitors on that account? Liberality and affability are noble qualities, but they may coexist with meanest qualities of infidelity to country and to God. And does it help your argument that General Greene has always stood firm in the belief that the country is more prosperous in times of peace than when in the commotion of civil war? We all believe that, but you believed that if forced into civil war, we must fight it out. Believing that, you drew your sword in just indignation, and returned it to its scabbard with honor. General Green believed in a base submission to traitorous demands, and clutched your shirt tails to keep you from the war, and yet tomorrow you will vote for him. Consistency thou art a jewel. General Green accepted a commission from Governor Seymour, not to aid the government in putting down rebellion, but to paralyze its efforts by having under control a force in the rear. You, Colonel Walrath, have read the history of the National Guard to little purpose if you do not know this. Of all the black record which General Green has made, his acceptance of his brigadiership under the circumstances, is not the least of the sins therein recorded. Colonel Walrath, you will say by your vote tomorrow that you endorse the man who would have brought all your patriotism to naught, a man who wrote peace letters while you were fighting, a man who brought Vallandigham to Syracuse at almost the moment when you were spiking the guns at Fort Fisher, a man whose every thought, whose every act was against the cause for which you contended. If you can thus neutralize your own record, we sincerely hope you will be found the one solitary example of the kind among the soldiers of Syracuse. Quantum Sufficit. All right, this is Hugh coming at you again. Remember earlier when I said we were going to return to the subject of Green's Northern Command? Well, here we are. This is the bit that piqued my interest. General Green accepted a commission from Governor Seymour, not to aid the government in putting down rebellion, but to paralyze its efforts by having under control a force in the rear. See, once again, they're talking about this idea of Green draining away resources from the battles in the South, but they're not talking about his veiled threat of armed insurrection against federal troops. I couldn't understand why until I stumbled upon something while investigating the peace meeting that was mentioned several times in these articles. They mentioned how the notorious Clement Vallandigham came to Syracuse for the peace meeting, so I went to Fulton History and searched for Vallandigham and peace meeting. It didn't take me too long to figure out that the meeting was held on August 18, 1867. And while I was looking at an article from August 23rd about that peace meeting, my eye fell on an article in the next column. And the clouds parted and the angels sang. It's moments of serendipity like this that make all of this research worth it. Check this out. From the seat of war on the Canadian frontier, Frontier Defenses, August 25th. I have met with an Adventure. Or, to put it better, the adventure met with me. I was detailed to picket that part of our line which lies between Oswego and Ogdensburg. With my trusty olive branch on my shoulder, I proceeded to picket. All the members of Company L know how to picket. In time of war, they picket with their olive branches, and in time of peace, they picket it with a dark lantern and a jimmy. It was late. The night was dark as tar, and the atmosphere was somewhat obscure. I was attending closely to the duties of my post. At late hours the members of Company L may be always found in close attendance upon posts. Something clapped me on the shoulder. I grasped my olive branch and turned around. It was an adventure. The adventure was tall and graceful. It was closely enveloped in an officer's cloak, it slightly moved its mantle and disclosed the white feather of its military hat. As soon as it showed the white feather, I knew it instantly. The adventure was Brigadier General Green. Says Brigadier General Green sonorously, "Picket, have you seen a cohort? Says I respectfully, not a cohort. Says Brigadier General Green impressively, If you see any cohort, do not hesitate to use your olive branch, says I humbly. Olive branch is the word. Says Brigadier General Green eloquently, Do you hear the gloomy hootings of the owls on the woody hills of Redfield? Do you hear the resonant beating of the surges on the sandy beaches of Alexandria Bay? Says I responsively, The said hootings and beatings do come to my ears. Says Brigadier General Green commandingly, Brave picket, Be as watchful as those owls and as steady as those surges. Says I, admiringly, owls and surges is the word. Then the adventure disappeared in the obscurity of midnight. Brigadier General Green is a truly great man. His ways are the ways of darkness. Later. A terrific conflict has taken place at the front. Two dastardly cohorts have attempted to cross the Canadian line. The attempt was made on the border of Clinton County. Brigadier General Green, who was superintending the erection of our batteries in front of Kingston at Sodus Bay, was at once informed of the fact and galloped immediately to the scene of conflict. As he rode along our lines, through the counties of Oswego, Jefferson, St. Lawrence, and Franklin, he was greeted with tumultuous applause by his gallant men. The dastardly cohorts were in a cart. They were in charge of a large quantity of munitions of war in a big barrel. Brigadier General Greene, with that military forethought which has ever characterized him on the field of battle, held one half his army in reserve and formed the other half in a hollow square. He remarked pithily that our foes should have a square fight of it. Nevertheless, our brave fellows went in roundly. Twelve different flank movements were executed— The cohorts became alarmed and threw down their arms. The captured munitions of war proved to be of great value. Company L is now engaged in drinking the munitions. They are evidently of Kentucky manufacture. Brigadier General Green has issued a congratulatory order drawn up by his chief of staff, Gideon J. Tucker. In writing his orders, Brigadier General Green feels the utmost confidence in his staff and leans on it. General Order Number Six. Soldiers of the National Guard. You have met the foe. His cohorts came down like the wolf on the fold. You were ordered to grasp your olive branches and gobble them. You gobbled at once. I was a witness to your soldierly bearing. The enemy endeavored in vain to bar your progress. Your gallantry made light of such bars. My brave National Guard has been too long accustomed to bars to be frightened at sight of them. Those who especially distinguished themselves in the recent encounter will be reported to Governor Seymour for promotion. My heart swelled at sight of the last sentence. It was evidently an allusion to me. Brigadier General Green has a way of alluding to his friends, which is touching. Latest. A deputation of conservative men from every township in New York has just waited upon Brigadier General Greene. One of them, who is a Halian from Hengland, thanked him in a profound speech for preserving their halters and their fires, especially their fires. He didn't seem to dwell so much on the halters. The deputation begged leave to present Brigadier General Green with a sword of honor. Brigadier General Green responded by saying that he never soared to such an honor. Brigadier General Green never soars. Any insinuation that he is aspiring to any particular honor makes him sore. Private Brown This is Hugh again, and Oh, God, I love droll 19th century sarcasm. I mean, this is top-shelf stuff, right down to the delightful, cringe-worthy puns. This piece does an exquisite job of mocking Green for his command, which drew away troops for a northern frontier that was just teeming with non-existent threats. And it gets even better. Check out this other little article that I discovered, again, by accident, because it's right next to another article about the peace meeting, published on the day of the meeting, August 18th. The Cavalry Battalion We understand that Captain Horton's cavalry company is fast filling up. It now numbers 48 men, Those who seem to prefer a slight brush on the frontier to being drafted for service south are entering this battalion. Hugh here. So I think this answers my question. In August of 1867, about five months before this election, the Republican newspapers were ridiculing Green for his military command because soldiers who should be fighting at the south were going north instead— and the Democratic paper was advertising for men to sign up and do just that. Essentially, I think that the public had held in its collective head a joke and a notion about Green's northern command, and there was no room in that collective head for a new notion about Green fomenting armed insurrection. Now, on the subject of truthfulness in newspaper writing, the writer says to Colonel Walrath that Greene, brought Vallandigham to Syracuse at almost the moment when you were spiking the guns of Fort Fisher. This is hilariously inaccurate. Follow the link in the show notes and you'll see an article published in the Courier in February of 1865. It's Walrath's letter giving his first-hand account of that assault on Fort Fisher in January of 1865. So yeah, Walrath was spiking those guns at almost the same moment as the peace meeting, if you consider four or five months' difference almost at the same moment. Oh, and speaking of spiking the guns, in his letter he mentions specifically that he didn't spike the guns. So this turns out to be a case study in sloppy writing in the service of poetic license in order to slander your opponent. Oh, and one more thing about that passage. Another shiny new Latin term, quantum sufficit," or as much as is sufficient. So that's kind of like tacking on a "nuff said at the end of the article. Now there's one last article for me to share, and this one again follows the theme of how we look to other cities. Our Charter Election Our charter election is attracting unusual attention in all parts of the state on account of the character of the candidates in nomination. The following extract from the Troy Times will be read with interest, containing as it does such a just and sincere tribute to the worth of our nominees. The Syracuse charter election takes place on Tuesday next. It is exciting unusual interest this year on account of political issues and for the reason that parties are so evenly divided in the central city. The Democrats, however, carried Syracuse by a considerable majority last spring, and so have prestige of former success to encourage them. But the Republicans have set to work now, determined to contest every inch of ground with the adversary, and they are making a fight under standard-bearers that are eminently worthy of their best efforts. Their candidate for mayor, Honorable Charles Andrews, is one of the leading Republicans in the state, and as a lawyer and legislator, he is distinguished for commanding abilities. Syracuse will honor itself at home and abroad by electing Mr. Andrews to the chief magistracy of the city. Honorable Patrick Corbett is the Republican candidate for police justice. And the citizens should deem themselves fortunate in the opportunity afforded to secure the services in that position of one who possesses a statewide reputation for superior talents, and whose steadfast integrity is above all reproach. No young man in the state has a finer record for scholarship in political economy and excellent judgment in discovering the points of justice in questions at issue than Mr. Corbett. The other Republican candidates are said to be first best. With such a ticket, Syracuse ought to go Republican next Tuesday, especially in view of the fact that the Democrats have nominated John A. Green Jr. for mayor, a copperhead as pronounced in his utterances and action during the dark days as was Fernando Wood or Vallandigham. And you're back to Hugh again for the last time this episode. Thanks for listening. I had a lot of fun with that, and I hope you did too. Next time, we ain't going to have any fun at all, because we're going to switch over to the Courier and see what they had to say the day before the election. As I've done this research, I've found myself saying the following often. It doesn't get any uglier than this. Well, it kept getting uglier. I'm not going to say that it doesn't get any uglier than this, but I will say that if it gets any uglier than the vile filth that I'm going to read next time, I won't read it. Thanks again, folks. And until next time, seek context. This is Hugh Yeaman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Triniski for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. He'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the flying trapeze. His movements were graceful; the girls he could please, and my love he stole away.